Before we begin, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of this series. Welcome to Tech Unmanned, a CSIS podcast where we bring together technologists and policymakers to discuss the intersection of defense, national security, and emerging technologies. I'm Caitlin Johnson, Deputy Director and Fellow with the Aerospace Security Project. And I'm Lindsay Shepard, a Fellow with the International Security Program. And on this week's episode, we're talking about autonomy. Our namesake. Yeah, this is our namesake episode, Tech Unmanned. Which is a joke. <laughs> Do we have to clarify that? I'm really excited, and Lindy is really excited to have two incredible experts join us here for the podcast today. Our first expert is Jamie Walters, Senior Technical Director and MBQ-9 Chief Architect at General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the discussion today. And next, we have Dr. Jacqueline Snyder. She is the Hoover Fellow at Stanford University. Thanks for having me. So we want to kind of start nice and easy and with a little introduction on autonomous systems. As we know, they've been absolutely revolutionary for DOD, and there has been a proliferation across the board of type, use case, mission for all of these systems. So Jackie, maybe you can start us off with what are autonomous systems capable of and how are they currently supporting the military? Yeah, and actually I think that it's not an easy question. I think it's actually slightly complicated because autonomy is actually a very large umbrella of technologies and capabilities. And I think often when we start talking about autonomous systems, we go to like the MQ-9 or the MQ-1 because these are the systems that are kind of most vivid in our uh, our understanding of what unmanned systems are. But the truth is autonomy is actually just a characteristic of weapons, platforms, munitions, sensors, that has been a part of warfare for actually a very, very long time, but that, you know, just recently we're able to really harness in different ways because of the digital revolution and the rise of microprocessors and the ability to transmit large amounts of information across spaces. So when you think about autonomy, you can think about autonomy in a lot of different ways. You can think about the autonomy to navigate through an environment, the autonomy to collect information, the autonomy to make decisions about employing munitions or tracking targets. So sometimes that means that your autonomous system is short range. Sometimes autonomy means that they can fly long distances far away, but they're actually remotely controlled. So there's this kind of like span of what really is autonomy. Now, one of my co-authors, Julie McDonald, and I went through the 2020 National Defense Authorization Act to look at kind of how much are we spending on these systems that we could call autonomy or unmanned. And it's about $10 million. Now we think of that, we kind of break it out as platforms. So unmanned platforms make up $3.1 billion of the 2020 NDAA. We have 6 billion for tactical, strategic, and intercontinental missiles. So we think of missiles as a version of autonomy. And then 1.3 billion for space systems. And space systems are kind of some of the first real autonomous systems that the US really revolutionized warfare with. Now, 10 billion sounds like a lot of money that ends up being about 1.5% of the total fiscal year 2020 budget. Now that doesn't include all the classified programs, so there's a lot more for that. So of those kind of outlays, you're looking at most of it is for the air domain. So air platforms 
and air munitions. Missiles, Reapers, Global Hawks, that's what we're talking about. But kind of the next big category there is space and undersea munitions. And then smaller grouping of investments is going to be in undersea platforms, ground munitions, ground platforms, and surface munitions. So you still see that air is the primary domain. But underwater and, and on the surface, they are looking at different types of unmanned systems for mine countermeasures, identification and disposal of mines, underwater for intelligence as well as service intelligence. And then I think maybe one of the biggest interesting elements of the 2020 NDAA was we saw a lot of investment by the Navy actually in unmanned platforms. So that's actually a really big change. The Navy traditionally has invested most of their unmanned systems in munitions and not platforms. Now, when we're talking about the ground, the ground's a bit of a harder problem for autonomy just because of the way terrain works and the difficulty in controlling systems over terrain as opposed to in the air or even underwater. And so when you look at kind of what we're investing in there, you're looking at the investment in robotic systems that help dispose of IEDs, as well as tactical reconnaissance. So once again, kind of smaller air platforms that are organic to an army unit. So all over the spectrum, we've seen probably the most the most kind of revolutions, the most technology development in the air and the space domains. Well, that's a really nice segue. I mean, so Jackie, you covered just so many systems. And I'd like to turn to Jamie now from your perspective, because your your focus has been really on that air domain system from your career at General Atomics. And it sounds like this has been kind of an evolutionary development between both industry and Department of Defense across the various services on the direction of the technologies, how do we employ them, you know, what are the capabilities? So can you tell us a little bit about that relationship between industry and DOD and how autonomous systems have evolved as new technologies or new applications have been developed? Where DOD and industry have really gone has been from a contracting relationship to really evolving into more of a partnership to gain additional levels of autonomy. And I think that partnership has really been critical and uh, kind of like to bring up a demonstration that we recently had with our MQ-20 Avenger aircraft where the government actually provided us an autonomy control system, ACS, where we integrated that into the platform it was just integrated and demonstrated in a, another industry partner's platform two months prior. We took that same ACS, integrated it into the platform, and went out and performed this autonomous demonstration. And that was really in a partnership where both industry and government are contributing and have skin in the game for taking these autonomous systems forward. From the air domain, which is primarily where we exist, we see autonomy entering through artificial intelligence with more auto routing, sensing the environment and being more task driven to conduct a mission as opposed to an operator in the loop. Now an operator is on the loop monitoring systems and the autonomy engine on the platform is actually performing a majority of those tasks, which then helps our U.S. government partners to drive down manpower, drive down overall costs, and help in keeping really our adversaries in this competition phase affordably. 
So what is an autonomy control system? Is that like the, the brains of the, the platform or the system? Because you, you mentioned, you know, bringing an AI and having more task driven versus having an operator driving it. Is that hardware or software? What is that ACS that you mentioned? So it's really more software based. And obviously, you've got to have to the processing environment to run that software on. But what it is enabling really third-party control of a platform through the environment it's sensing. So let's take the case of we have an autopilot on the platform. It's part of the core aircraft infrastructure, and you add in this ACS component. That ACS component is this third-party software that then can provide updated mission plans to an autopilot that the aircraft will follow to position the aircraft in a location that can better optimize the sensors to look at a target or to maneuver around a threat as part of like an auto route, or to be able to keep in a certain airspace volume so it doesn't violate that you know airspace or maybe a country's sovereign airspace. And we have these keep-in boundaries that this ACS system is then providing these updated mission plans or navigation to the autopilot to maneuver the aircraft. So it sounds like this is relatively mature technology. And we know that you know the MQ-9 and other centerpieces of the aviation system arsenal you know, are really well known, but it seems like you're iterating off them and also developing new concepts or ideas of building in even more autonomy. Jamie, can you maybe talk us through some of these new avenues that the DOD is exploring? So I think I want to do that in trying to paint a vision for what that future kind of looks like uh, with autonomy and where DOD is kind of adopting more autonomous systems. And again, it goes back to being able to try to hold our adversaries at risk and keep them in a competition phase instead of you know, starting World War III. By keeping our adversaries at risk in this competition phase affordably, we can do that through autonomy. So examples of where this is going with future concepts is having a family of systems of, a, of autonomous aircraft out there where you may have an MQ-9-sized platform or an Avenger-sized platform or even a Gray Eagle-sized platform delivering what they call air-launched effects or small UAS to a combat line or to go in and perform certain functions, certain ISR functions, or even to perform electronic attack to suppress in a communications network. Maybe it's a raid force that comes in to rescue a hostage or something of that nature. Or maybe you're trying to make a positive ID of a certain combatant. But these family of systems and what we can do with them through autonomy allows the platform to go out and go back to that, get a task, let it go out and perform that task, the operators on the loop watching that operation, but not necessarily making all the dynamic flight control changes. He's not maybe necessarily steering a sensor, but the autonomy engine on the platform is actually uh, steering the sensors based on the environment it's sensing. And then once 
a target is identified or automatically developed, only that information is sent back and to inform the greater battle space. So it's this complex of networked autonomous sensing platforms out there performing some of these future employment concepts. And again, that's in the air domain. It can be done from the uh, surface domain as well as a uh, undersea domain. It's all being driven by AI and these you know, mesh networks or communication networks that are highly resilient because we're not pushing a lot of data across it. The only data we're pushing across is when these targets are developed, identified, and positively ID'd to inform the battle space on the environment. So that's really interesting because we're talking about, you know, this kind of evolution of a capability and you've contrasted the role of you know, the human in the loop making decisions now being not replaced, but being moved to, I guess, a different part of that relationship. So they're not necessarily making the direct decisions, the autonomy engine is, but they're still on the loop and observing and monitoring. And so Jackie, this is a place where I know you've been really active in writing on the future uses of unmanned systems and that human machine relationship in war. So can you describe for us, you know, what is that relationship and how might it it shift in the future or look different in the future based on the kind of systems that we're looking at over the horizon? Yeah, I mean, this human-machine relationship is extremely important as we think about not only the adoption of technology, but also, Jamie spoke a little bit about resilience and being able to work in kind of operationally degraded environments with technologies that have some level of autonomy. And so this trust relationship is extremely important. A few years ago, uh, my co-author, Julia McDonald, and I were really interested in this question. It was... Um, and now is, is very ancient, and this is kind of the way the academic um, world works. We started working on this problem in like 2000, and I want to say it was 2013, and we thought, well, we're seeing this kind of proliferation of unmanned technologies, and specifically unmanned aerial vehicles or remotely piloted aircraft. And we were interested in what the perspective was, not from the pilot, but instead from the the folks on the ground, the joint terminal attack controllers or the joint fires, the folks that were calling in the airstrikes that were relying on these platforms to deliver munitions, either in like a friendly, uh, in an environment where they were very close contact to the troops or an environment where you have a lot more separation. So we were interested in kind of what their perspective was. So we conducted a survey experiment as well as interviews. I want to say it was over 500 individuals, all JTACs or JFOs, mostly JTACs. And we were looking, we were trying to understand, you know, did they trust the system? And it was a really fascinating conversation because for JTACs are an interesting group of people because they understand both the ground threat intimately because they're on the ground and they're, they're being threatened. But they also have a, a, a very heightened understanding of what the air assets are because they're in charge of coordinating air assets to support the ground fires. So we found a very interesting relationship where, at the time, the individuals had what I would say could sometimes have confidence in their unmanned systems, but struggled with trust. And especially when we place them in scenarios where it was close contact, where they were concerned about fratricide. And when we talked in interviews, we had discussions about the warm fuzzy and this this conceptualization that perhaps the remote pilot, by being further away from the battlefield, was less invested in outcomes and would therefore less likely to make good decisions. Now, I'm not saying any of this is empirically valid. We didn't we didn't trust this 
in either in any direction. But at the time, we thought it was really fascinating that there was this strong distrust of the the machine, even when they knew there was a human being in the machine, and they often knew the pilots, right? And part of this, I think, was cultural. 2013 was very early kind of in the the innovation of unmanned systems or RPAs being integrated into CAS, which is the kind of active support of ground troops. And so it was a little bit early in that kind of tactic um, and operation. It would be interesting to run the work again. But Julie and I, as well as some, we have another co-author, Mike Horowitz, we've been looking at kind of the adoption of autonomy in general and artificial intelligence. And, and human beings have different, they're more or less likely to adopt these technologies based on the amount of risk that they perceive from the technology and also their own familiarity with the technology. So for unmanned uh, cars, for example, you know, there's actually a lot of distrust of unmanned cars. And why is that? Well, it's partly because it's very dangerous, but it's also because we know how to drive a car, right? So why delegate to the machine something that I can do myself? We tested that in comparison, for example, to autonomous uh, or robotic surgery, and there's less of a distaste for robotic surgery. And part of that's because, I mean, most people aren't surgeons, right? So you've already delegated some level of, of responsibility. So there is that about, you know, risk and autonomy. And then I think what Julie and I continue to, to find is that Unmanned systems can create a level of trust or AI-enabled systems can create a level of confidence so I can know rationally how the machine is supposed to work. But that without iteration, that confidence struggles to turn into trust. And trust is more, it's not just knowing that the system will function, but that I'm willing to delegate some level of responsibility to the machine. And that that only comes with, with time and iteration. And in some scenarios, I think the bar actually is quite high to reach that level where you're completely ready to trust the machine. I think trust is also built through training and repetitive exercises and continued use of that system of, yeah, it's always there when I need it there. It's providing the information I need. And I've had these operational experiences to build that trust. Absolutely. And that's why I would love to do our study again, you know, at like a time lag, you know, because now it's been eight years since the, the study. And there's been not only a lot of iteration on the battlefield, but I think increasingly, because at the time when we were doing our work, JTACs were actually not getting a lot of training with unmanned systems before they deployed because those systems were so tied up in the overseas campaigns. And so there wasn't a lot of integration into the syllabus, for example, as they were gaining qualifications. So it would be interesting to see how that has changed and evolved. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it's been... Uh... It is now being integrated into the syllabus, but before they just didn't have that training or the amount of training necessary anymore. It seems like our troops go out on patrol and if they don't have an MQ-9 overhead, they really don't want to go out. And I don't blame them because you got that persistent staring eyeball that is watching their back 24-7 anytime they're out. And then if something does erupt and you have uh, troops in contact, now it's a matter of you have an MQ-9 sitting over top and they can do something about it or an MQ-1 Charlie. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the question becomes the difference between persistence and surveillance, which we found people are in general very, very confident of and trustful of and want more and more and more of. And then um, wanting to have that, that manned weapon system as a complement instead of relying solely on the RPA 
that was something that we found at the time. And at the time, there was actually, um, interestingly enough, it was not our primary research goal, but we also learned they really, really, really wanted the A-10 weapon systems that our sole mission is supporting ground troops, as opposed to multi-mission aircraft like an F-15 or an F-16, where the JTAX at least perceived that these, these weapon systems, one, had less munitions that they wanted, and two, that their pilots were maybe like not as well-trained or well-versed on the procedures for combat support for the ground troops. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it, I think that comes back to training again, that they've trained with A-10s and they didn't likely didn't train that much with MQ-9. So it would be really interesting if that study was rerun. You would think that that was not the case because we actually talked to a variety of different JTACs across the services and many of them actually didn't have. There were actual kind of service affiliations where, you know, if you're a Marine, you're more likely to like the F-18 because you're more likely to train with them. But in general, the consensus was they loved the A-10. You built an airplane around a, you know, <laughs> a big gun. So that's pretty cool, right? But we did ask. We said, well, what if it was an unmanned A-10? And the, there was more of a concern there. But I think actually when you think about, when you look at the trajectory of development of platforms in the United States, especially when it comes to autonomy, I think you do see a lot of reticence to go completely autonomous, especially when it comes to the use of weapon systems. Even our development with the MQ-9, I think, has been extremely measured. I want to highlight that the United States, I think if you look at the pattern and the trajectory of unmanned development, this concern about the ethics of the use of autonomous weapons is, is throughout the entire development. And it is much cheaper and actually makes more tactical sense to develop the kind of unmanned munitions that you see um, Armenia and Azerbaijan being used in their these kind of loitering munitions. They're basically flying mines, right? But they have a big yep. problem with collateral damage and fratricide. And the United States has time and time again made the choice that that is not going to be the kind of unmanned systems that they invest in. I think sometimes actually to their tactical deficit. If you follow the U.S. trajectory, there's a lot of reticence to completely move the utilization of weapons to completely autonomous. Do we see the same choices being made by our near-peer competitors? So, you know, if, if you want to talk about, like, for example, China and Russia as well, I think when we watch the MQ-1 and the MQ-9, um, and to some extent the Global Hawk, catch the imagination and be used over and over again in these campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Great Middle East, you saw a lot of mimicry. So states like China trying to develop, and I would consider these kind of prestige unmanned systems. But recently you're seeing that China and Russia are now developing less of these prestige unmanned systems and moving more towards these cheaper platforms that have a whole lot more autonomy inside the weapons platform itself. And those, and they're exporting those. And so I think if you look at kind of the development, what worries me for the near peers is not developing something that looks like a global hawk or that looks like an MQ-9. Because to be honest, their chains, the, the ability to communicate and control them are, are highly vulnerable in a contested conflict. I'm more concerned about these munitions that have less intelligence in them that are far cheaper and not only create mass for the Chinese and the Russians, but also create kind of low-cost ways of creating kinetic effects that otherwise just you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be an issue for us. Jamie, from your perspective, do you see this affecting the U.S. decision-making? Are they asking different questions to industry to acquire different types of systems, or are we still continuing along the path of keeping the human, maybe not, as you said, in the loop, but watching the loop? I would say for U.S. systems to release weapons, 
you're going to always have a human in the loop on that. There's going to be somebody that will be pulling the trigger per se to release a weapon. I don't see that we'll get to any time soon where we have complete faith in a fully autonomous system to actually release a weapon and make a decision on its own to engage a target kinetically. Now, that's not to say that we may not get there. Well, we'll get there in maybe 50 years, but there is so much policy, regulatory, and, and laws that would have to be changed to ultimately get there. Now, in the case of you look at a, you know, a, a cruise missile, a cruise missile is a fully autonomous, by and large, autonomous weapon, but it's been programmed to seek out a specific target. It has specific coordinates. It knows exactly where it is going. And then there's contingency plans if something changes that they could terminate the flight. So with unmanned systems, though, where we're going with MQ-9, MQ-1 Charlies, etc., it still is going to have a man in the loop to ultimately release a weapon. And I think we're going to maintain that higher ground or that higher ethical standard for how do we engage targets kinetically from a weaponized unmanned platform. And with regard to resiliency, today's systems are more vulnerable in highly contested environments, but through some uh, modernization efforts, these systems can become much more robust and uh, DOD is currently looking at how do we increase the resiliency of the command and control links But part of that is the inclusion of autonomy. Part of it is the inclusion of AI, where we can go out and automatically develop targets based on the sensors on the platform, what it's sensing, and it may have a hit off a SIGINT system that then commands a SAR image of wherever that emitter was uh, emitting from, that then it analyzes the SAR image. Ultimately, maybe it it has a, through a connected network or connected battle space, there's another asset with EOIR that can take a snapshot image of it. All that gets fused back in a data center, but it's chipping information off. It's not you know high bandwidth data links to push all this massive amount of data off the platform. The AI and automation is making decisions at the tactical edge and then only chipping off the important information that then a human in the loop can make decisions on of, oh, yeah, that is the target we're after. All right, let's have positive command and control of the platform and engage the target. So that's part of the the roadmap to get to more resiliency or more robust command and control, and it's evolution of SATCOM and where SATCOM is going. It's also evolution of data links and having these connected sensing nodes across the battle space using mesh networks that ultimately tie back into SATCOM or even LaserCOM to improve and increase the robustness of this command and control link to these platforms. Building on what Jamie's saying, the key to this resilience, and this is kind of what the 
folks who study network theory find is that it's having lots and lots and lots of nodes and lots and lots and lots of bridges. My concern is that if we are trying to recreate lots and lots of nodes and lots and lots of bridges with the unmanned inventory that we currently have, we're going to have a lot of really expensive nodes and expensive bridges. And that I think if we're really thinking about the future of unmanned and autonomy, we're thinking of things that need to be at a much, much, much lower economic cost. You know, in the past, one of the big ways in which unmanned systems have, have not proliferated is that it becomes much more expensive if you want them to return. And I think the U.S. has generally been building over the last decade platforms that they, they employ as if they're going to return. I mean, the Global Hawk is a really good example of an unmanned system that is just billions, you know, of dollars, and you don't have very many of them, and you need to defend them, and they're just come at really, really high cost, right? And in the future, what we're going to need is we're going to need systems that we're able to lose, that are cheap. And that gives us the mass and the resiliency because you can imagine these networks are going to come in constant, in constant conflict. And in order to keep this kind of free-flowing information, you're going to have to reconstitute the network all the time. And so I think, you know, if you, if you think about unmanned systems as just a manned system without the man in it, then you're always going to be expensive, right? But if you start thinking about what can we do with autonomy that, that is special and different, and it's not just about mitigating political costs, because I think actually a lot of our investment so far has been high on economic costs in order to mitigate political costs. But in a future competition, what we might find is that instead we'll maximize on low economic costs and think more about autonomous systems, not as just a man system without a man in it, but instead having these very different functions, comm relays, uh, creating mass, creating... Um, drone, like literally missile soakers, you know, because missiles these days are millions and millions of dollars and states have less and less of them. So I think that there's, there's a whole new set of missions that are probably going to be much more conducive to this new type of competition and conflict. So one of the awesome things that I love about being able to have you both on here is we have two experts that live this on a day-to-day -day basis. And you have talked about you know, moving towards more attributable, expendable systems, networks of the future, uh, new command and control and SATCOM. And so I would love to hear from each of you as we wrap up the episode, just a quick, what are the near-term things that you guys are watching for that will signal to you we're making progress in the right direction? Is there, you know, a technical development of an enabling technology policy shift or like a, just even a mindset of how we think through this. As experts in this field, what are y'all watching for next? It's a very broad question, but I think open architecture is going to be one of the most critical core fundamental uh, technologies that will be required. And it, it's full adoption of open architecture across all the military systems that will enable this movement of sensors or capabilities across platforms rapid response to emerging threats to be able to add in best breeded capability without having to go through, you know, multi-year development cycles and shrinking those down to instead of multi-year to single year to months to be able to field this capability rapidly. And it's going to be an enabler for increased autonomy the addition of AI onto the platform. So it's that wide adoption of open architecture that are we're beginning to see those steps, but we're not there. And it's not as proliferated across the enterprise as it needs to be. 
Yeah. You know, I think if you look back 20 years ago or even 30 years ago to when we first started talking about information technologies and the, the revolution in information, we saw a focus on speed and distance and range. And the idea that the theory of victory was that we were going to strike first, strike decisively, and increasingly strike from far away with precision. And I think that the theory of victory today is less about speed and decisional advantage, but instead being able to maintain trust and resilience in on the second strike. And so I hope that we start seeing investments that are not just about winning the first volley, but instead investing in weapon systems, in architectures, in uh, networks that allow that second strike survival. And so I think we go from speed and decision advantage to instead to mass and resiliency. And those are just, they're not as sexy of investments necessarily, and they generally require thinking about networks of networks. But if we start seeing more discussions of that and less discussions of we're just going to make an unmanned platform, I think we'll find that everything works together better. And I think in the end, having a more resilient force actually does make the United States a more credible deterrent than building a force that can only survive if it strikes first. In the loop, on the loop, out of the loop, I feel in the loop. All the prepositions of the loop is basically a summary of all autonomy conversations. I will say, you know, as as frustrating as like the remote times have been and as disappointing as it's been that Caitlin and I haven't been able to do this in person, I do think it is really cool that we could have two West Coast guests. If we had done this before COVID, we would have been really restricted to people that were here in D.C., and this has really allowed us to open up our aperture and bring on Jamie, who works at General Atomics, and Jackie, who's at Stanford, and to, you know, all we have to do is adjust for the time zone, and you guys suffer a little bit maybe on the audio quality if anyone's echoey, but this has been a really cool way for us to engage with experts across the United States that aren't necessarily located in the D.C. area. We're bridging the gap and uh, talking about uh, defense technology. Some things I found just incredible and enlightening and would not have thought to talk about them. And the first is Jackie's discussion about trust, which I also know you're super interested in. And just something I didn't quite think about, probably because I don't have direct experience working with autonomous vehicles, and therefore I just kind of assume there's a natural level of mostly trust. This comes up all the time in in conversations related to autonomy, machine learning, artificial intelligence. And I think an analogy that I can use to explain it is I don't necessarily have to trust a system to be 100% right all the time. Trust sometimes just means I understand the performance parameters. It's predictable. I know how it's going to perform under certain circumstances. And so a good example is navigation aids. So I use the navigation aid on my Apple iPhone, and it tells me where to go. You use Apple Maps? I do use Apple Maps. Oh, my God, Lindsay. We're sponsored by Google. I know. I don't use Google Maps. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll do better. You could use Waze, and Waze is adaptable, and people have gained experience using Waze, and it will update its things based on traffic and based on slowdowns. But then I also have a built-in navigation aid in my car, and I trust that system to perform 
way worse than any navigation aid on my phone. I can guarantee you that So you don't trust that system. I, no, I do trust it. I trust it to give me a subpar outcome and a subpar product. And so if I'm, you know, driving somewhere and I have uh, my phone is telling me one potential update and my vehicle is trying to dynamically reroute me, I know not to trust the dynamic rerouting because I have gained it through, as Jackie said, through repetition and continued use. I know instinctively the operating parameters and where that particular navigation aid falls short and what it's good at. It's not good at dynamic rerouting. Oftentimes, it sends me off on country roads and delays me even longer. And so that is a form of trust when we're talking about systems that we have to think about trust because they don't have a person in the loop or they don't have a person that we can physically see. Trust is not just it gives me the best outcome 100% of the time. It's I understand when it's operating well, when it's not operating well, when are its outputs valid, when do I maybe need to move to a backup system, or when do I need to ignore it? And that, in the context of military systems, that's all part of trust. And you really only get that, like Jamie said, and like Jackie said, through repetition and through continued use of a system and integrating it into your daily operations. What a great example. I mean, I think, obviously, less high stakes And in the military, you might not have a backup. You might not have your phone to give you better information. But understanding the parameters and how much trust you should place in a certain system does only come from training and use. Yeah, and these are the things in in systems engineering, we call them the illities. Understandability, predictability, reliability. If I can rely on a system to not work under certain conditions, that is a form of reliability. And I think the big kicker for the Department of Defense and for defense contractors and people that are working in this space is, like Jackie and Jamie brought up, is not just that we understand trust is a thing, how do we measure it? How do we start building in assessments to our training? How do we think through what are the metrics that capture and evaluate trust in autonomous systems so that instead of, you know, it's, well, I know this system isn't going to perform 50% of the time, which is a form of trust. It's how do we start building in trust, but also have systems that work and you can count on those systems. And so thinking through those metrics and assessments are the really big hurdle for building trust in these new systems. Well, and it's so dynamic, depending on the use case itself, maybe the situation that you're in. You know, right now, the the big stalwart UAVs, uncrewed aerial vehicles, whatever you want to call them, remotely piloted, we know and understand how they operate in the conditions they've been used in for the past 20 years in Afghanistan and the Middle East. You know, but as we possibly shift to great power competition, looking at China, looking at the Pacific, you know, how do these systems then, how does the trust change in new situations? How are they used differently? And how do we need to think about evolving? Right. And I mean, this is this is a big question facing the DOD right now as we look at a shift in priority to the Indo-Pacific. There's lots of questions on how do the existing systems adapt to this new geographic environment? It is very dispersed. It is there's a lot of water. 
You're just operating in a very different space. Does this require new types of systems? Are they going to be underwater or surface vessels? Are there going to be new missions for uh, uncrewed or unmanned systems? And how do we think through developing not just the technology itself, but how do we think through developing those new concepts of operation of when and where and how you use this technology in this Indo-Pacific theater? So something you just touched on, which I really wish we had talked a little bit more about with our guests, are these future emerging technologies for autonomous systems. So taking what we've learned in the past couple of decades and applying them into these new situations with different evolutions of this of a similar technology or adapting the technology to include new things like AI. And some of these you mentioned, surface vehicles, undersea, swarm technology, attributable systems, which are basically systems that are lower cost and you can lose them a little more easily, like ammunition instead of, you know, a couple hundred million dollar drone. And then also using systems in different ways to not just provide intelligence or provide fire support. I'm not quite sure how military technically says that, but also using it for data and networking and communicating over these long distances as we look towards that theater shift. Yeah, I mean, before I was at CSAS, we were working on projects for UAVs. These were aerial systems. And one of the use cases was that it would just be a comms relay. It would be a communications relay. If I had line of sight communications, I could actually put a UAV up in the air And then that would facilitate a beyond line of sight communication. And that was kind of a downgrade from that system's mission because it was supposed to do other things. But that's a useful thing when you're talking about distributed operations is being able to communicate over the horizon. Right. And you can develop maybe less expensive systems to only have that one mission that have maybe long loiter times that can fly longer distances under certain different weather conditions. I mean, all of these things factor into different types of vehicles than what we kind of have seen in the past. Yeah, so this is a great example of a of a phenomenon that we see particularly with missiles is this concept of a cost asymmetry. If the missile I am shooting cost many, many, many times more than the things I'm shooting down, eventually I'm going to incur a cost asymmetry of it's going to cost the shooter far more money to build the missiles than it will be to build the targets. And so there's this really interesting shift in autonomous systems and unmanned systems to have, like you talked about, attributable, expendable, low-cost systems. And I think at least as we've seen so far in the use cases in the Middle East is they are expendable, but there is still enough technology on these systems that we don't necessarily want them to fall into any hands. And so does that keep shifting in a direction where they're even more expendable, like small little quadcopter drones that I can go buy off the shelf and send out? It'll be interesting to see how that develops, but I don't know if that will hold in the case of new technologies like underwater or unmanned surface vessels that, you know, they have to be developed enough to be able to travel long distances. So one of the problems that we see in any type of of system is your swap considerations, your size, weight, and power. And if I have an underwater vessel that is really small, how am I going to power it? How am I going to give it enough propulsion and enough fuel 
to get across the vast expanse that is the ocean without making it so expensive and non-expendable. And I think there's like a, there's a trade space. There's a curve there where you have to kind of decide which do you prioritize over the other. Right. And I think we've seen in the past couple decades, DOD really prioritizing expensive systems that can do a lot and are incredibly you know, advanced and have a lot of technology on board. And now maybe we're correcting or shifting back a little bit towards the middle on looking at these less expensive, uh, maybe not as capable but use in the correct situation, very helpful, usable things. It's not just smaller systems or less expensive systems. There are also ways to operate systems that make them reusable. So learning how to recapture drones or UAVs in the air, right? That's something we can't do yet. Right now, drones take off, they fly to wherever they're supposed to go. That distance is time and is fuel. And so it limits the amount of time that system can spend doing its mission. It has to get back. Right. As, as Jamie and Jackie said, it becomes more expensive if you want the system to return. Yes, exactly. So thinking creatively about different ways of doing this. And, you know, when you say data networking and beyond the horizon, I also think look up, look up at space and maybe use autonomy in other ways. I mean, technically, space systems are also autonomous. But I think this kind of rethink of how do we face the next fight or how do we deter the next fight, preferably, depends a lot on answering these questions. Yeah, I know we we touched on a little bit, you know, this this is all part of this robust evolution of command and control and SATCOM and data links and connecting all of these sensor nodes and even just having data links that can facilitate the types of communication and processing that you need between systems. And so there's a, you know, a push to have more on-platform processing because the more information and processing that can happen on the platform, the less I am burdening those data links. And so that'll be really important, at least from the American context, because our focus right now has been very heavily on a human-machine teaming concept of how can I use unmanned systems, be they in the air or on the water, to provide support to manned platforms, to platforms with humans in them. So can they provide, you know, a refueling capability? So they're just carrying extra fuel for the manned platform that can then be offloaded and allow that aircraft or that ship to go farther? Do they provide an extra weapons store? So my aircraft are limited on the number of, of missiles and munitions they can carry at one time. But if I have a, a drone flying next to me that doesn't have any launch authority, but it basically just acts as like a little buggy or a little shopping cart for extra munitions. <laughs> for, munitions. for extra weapons. Extra weapons. I realize there's some like regional context on, do you say, buggy, cart, I don't know is what everyone really? else say. Well, yeah, is it really? Yeah, I've never. Heard, I don't know if I've ever heard know. buggy. I'm from Georgia, and we said buggy, so <laughs> I don't know what you guys said. But it acts as like you know, it's a it's an extra munition store, and or it can act as a comms relay or a a loyal wingman uh, is the is the the air version of the program. wing woman, wing woman. That's right. That tech is unmanned, and you know, there's all kinds of concepts that. That is really heavily dependent on that data link and using that bandwidth very carefully. However, 
you know, that's not where everybody else is prioritizing it. And so while the U.S. context is very much focused around using automation and artificial intelligence in a human machine teaming context, we certainly do worry about are there nation state actors or their adversaries that are thinking about offloading more responsibility to these systems than we necessarily would. And I thought that was something really interesting that Jackie brought up or that we meant to ask to Jackie was, you know, what are the remaining ethical questions that the U.S. government still has to answer in this in this context um, or on this topic? Yeah, maybe we draw a line somewhere that a different country has a different calculus and they don't draw the same line. Then does it push our ethics? Does it push the way we think about these systems or how we use them? I do think, yeah, we'll see, especially on this topic, there's often a reference to like a race to the bottom of, well, if our adversary is doing X, Y, Z, then we have to. And I have not run into many people that will, you know, successfully argue that that's the case, but I think it's certainly a concern. But, you know, that ethical question of when and how and where is it appropriate to use autonomy is certainly one that, you know, the DOD wrestles with. I do wish that there was a better construct for thinking about that beyond human on the loop, in the loop, out of the loop. It's just very unclear and it doesn't give a good sense, you know, really for where what the role of the human is. It's probably the best we have. But this question of autonomy, I mean, it gets back to our first episode on AI of, we're starting to rethink technologies that may be familiar to us in ways that we hadn't before. And you'll run into this where people will ask, is a suicide drone meaningfully different from a loitering munition? And these are questions that we don't have answers to. And with that, <laughs> we're going to wrap it up. You guys answer the question and let us know what you think. I would like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics, Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of this series. Visit our show page at csis.org slash techunmanned for show notes, more about our guests, and all things autonomy. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at techunmannedpod. And don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review this series wherever you listen to podcasts. And we will see you in two weeks.